Amen, amen. It's good to see everybody here this morning. I know that we still have several that are out traveling for vacation, and I'm hoping possibly next week I'll be able to go on one myself. But when you got five children, you know, family vacation is like an oxymoron. You know what I'm saying? Family vac. I don't even know if I believe in family vacations in the term of that. But uh, and if you went with us, you'd realize what I'm talking about. But uh, uh, like Clay said, if you're visiting with us for the first time, we uh, we want to extend a, a warm welcome. We appreciate you for coming and being here, and we're so thankful for you. And I want to give God some glory. We're about 40 days away from opening day of uh, deer hunting season, and all the deer hunters went hallelujah. Where you at, Logan? All right. So I'm, I was just thinking about that today. I was thinking about Jesus and deer hunting. You know, and, and God loves me enough to invent deer hunting and give us animals to, uh, to be able to harvest and eat and take care of ourselves. God's just good in every way. I feel like God is pleased with me when I'm sitting in a tree stand. You know, I, I, used, to, you know, I, mean, I used to be, uh, you know, I used to feel condemned, but now I'm thinking, you know what, God, you created me for this. Oh, hallelujah. But uh, anyways, um, we appreciate you for being here. We are, uh, we're going to conclude our, our, our sermon series. We've been talking about Hell's Best Kept Secrets, and we... We started out talking uh, about four things that uh, are critically important that we, we need to use to examine our own hearts, because the Scripture teaches us that we are to examine ourselves and see if we're in the faith. It says to, to make our calling and election sure, and we talked about the importance of uh, the motives of our heart. Having the right heart motive is critically important. We, we talked about the purpose of God's law. We, we talked about... Uh, the, the human conscience and, and, the, and the role that it plays in bringing us to Christ. And, and then we talked about true and genuine repentance. And then in the second message, we talked about the characteristics of a false convert uh, or a true convert, or, and, and there were the fruits of uh, repentance, the fruits of good works, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of righteousness. Last week, we discussed the characteristics of a false convert and how that uh, Simon the sorcerer, he believed, he was baptized, and, and he continued to follow Philip, but, but he did all of that for all the wrong reasons. We, we talked about how Simon had a wrong view of self, a wrong view of salvation, a wrong view of the Holy Spirit, and, and a wrong view of sin. And, and today we're going to conclude by talking about deception. And, and this is a uh, I believe a very, very important message for us in our day. And that's the thing that I love about the Bible. The Bible is divinely inspired by God. And it says that the entirety of the Bible is beneficial to us. In other words, there's something that we can learn on every single page of the Bible that can be beneficial and useful and profitable and helpful uh, for us in our lives. And, and we're going to open up to the book of Jude. Jude is a very small book. There's only 25 verses in it, but it's an incredibly powerful book. And I believe that it has a message that is uh, relevant to the day that we're living in. And uh, we're going to talk about deception, the great falling away. Um, and what the Scripture has to say about it. Jude, we're going to start reading at verse number 1, and we'll continue through verse 7. If you're there, say amen. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, 
and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to exhort you to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you. So he's got a very serious message that he's bringing to the church in this epistle. And he said, I, I, I found it very important that I put down on paper as the Holy Spirit inspired me to do so, so that you would know beforehand what to watch out for in the days ahead. And he says in verse 5, I want to remind you, notice what it says here, this is a very important phrase, though, though you once knew this. He's talking about people who had a foreknowledge, who who, who have a familiarity about what he's talking about concerning this common salvation, though you once knew this, that the Lord having, notice what it says here, saved. The Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, and then notice this next word, which is important. Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. What's he saying here? What he's saying is, there are those that at one time experienced salvation, deliverance, and had a genuine, miraculous encounter with God while they were in Egypt. All of the children of Israel had a genuine encounter with God. All of them were brought out of Egypt by this same God. All of them experienced deliverance from bondage by this same God. All of them experienced the miracle of the Red Sea parting and walked across on dry ground. He said, even though those that once knew this, afterward, God destroyed those that did not believe. In other words, at one time these people legitimately believed, but afterwards they renounced or walked away from the very thing that they once believed was true about God. Now notice what it says in verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. In other words, the angels that were in heaven were cast out when Lucifer fell, and we know according to Scripture that at least one-third of them were cast out of heaven. He has reserved for everlasting chains under darkness for judgment of that great day. Now notice he talks about in verse 7, And as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, having gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Let's, let's pray together. Father, today we worship you, and we thank you for your word. We believe that your word is 
divinely inspired, that all Scripture has been inspired by you. Lord, today we look at the book of Jude. We look at these seven verses, and Lord, I believe you have something to say to us. Lord, I ask you to give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to uh, overcome any inability that uh, I'm having to deal with, to be able to share only those things which are important that are on your heart. Help me to communicate clearly and simplistically. Give us revelation knowledge. Cause this word to come alive in us, speak to us, and draw us closer to your own heart that we may become more like you in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. The book of Jude is a very short book. It's only 25 verses long. But in those 25 verses, he gives us a very strong and powerful message that I believe is important for us, especially in the day that we're living in. But it's more than just a message. It's actually a warning. And it's a warning specifically about apostasy. Apostasy simply means to fall away from the faith. According to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Before the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Scripture says that there would be a great falling away and departure from the faith. I believe with all of my heart that we are living in that day, and that day is now upon us, and we're beginning to see uh, in the beginning stages this great falling away come to pass right before our very eyes. Many great educational institutions like Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Columbia, they were all founded on uh, and, and built upon for the purpose of the propagation of the gospel in our nation. All of these, all of these universities, the purpose, the reason they existed was to equip those to take the gospel throughout America. But now these same universities that were founded on the Word of God, that were built upon and for the purpose of of taking the gospel to uh, the areas both here and around the world, are now some of the most liberal and secular universities in our nation. They have fallen away from the faith. Many mainstream denominations and churches are now purposefully uh, uh, omitting or, or e- removing certain portions of Scripture. They refuse to talk about them or any of these things that would tend to be controversial or make people that come to their church feel uncomfortable. Things like the, the reality of hell, the existence of hell, the, the, the reality and consequences of sin and the approval of of homosexuality and and same-sex marriages, they're willfully and intentionally uh, removing and and omitting these things from Scripture and and refuse to talk about them. Many uh, great men of God have bowed their knee to the gospel of inclusion and and universalism, and and, and, and they're just uh, preaching just uh, uh, self-help messages, things that, that, that really just make us feel good about ourselves, and, and so they're intentionally 
avoiding certain topics and discussions that are in the Word of God that are absolutely necessary for us to know and understand and be prepared because eventually all of us will come to a point to where we will have to stand for the truth. You're going to have to learn how to stand for something. And if you don't stand for something, you know how the saying goes, you'll fall for what? anything. So when we look at all of these things, we, we see the departure of these universities. We see the, the churches and mainstream denominations. We see these great men of God who, 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 who were once uncompromising in, in their preaching, now uh, uh, compromising, watering down, diluting, intentionally avoiding things and not talking about the entirety of the Word of God. When we see these things, Jude said this, I felt it important to write these things to you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. Now, that, that, that is spiritual warfare terminology, contending, fighting, standing, and, and being able to defend the faith. He said, I, I, I thought it was important enough that I write to you, and not just write to you, warn you about the things that are going to take place very, very soon so that you can earnestly contend for the faith. Now, let me tell you this. There's no such thing as passive Christianity. Passive Christianity is no Christianity at all. Passivity is not from the devil. Passivity is the devil. And there is no such thing as passive Christianity. You can't be neutral when it comes to standing for the Word of God. If you are passive in your belief passive in where you stand in terms of truth and absolute truth, if you're passive in your relationship with God, you are in very, very much danger of being numbered among those that the Scripture says will depart from the faith. But he writes and he says, I want you to earnestly contend for the faith. Passive Christianity is not Christianity, it's deception in its most deceptive form. You can't straddle the fence. You can't go with the flow. You can't fly under the radar. You can't be a counterfeit. You can't be a fake. You know what? In our nation, in the culture, and the way that people view the church and they view Christianity, I'm convinced that over half, at least over half of the people that would call themselves Christians are not Christians because there's no evidence. There's no fruit there's no proof. There's, you, you can't look at their life and see anything different in their life than you would from anybody else off of the street. And so we cannot afford to become passive in our faith because if we're passive in our faith, we will be a victim to this great falling away that I believe have actually begun to happen. But when he talks about earnestly contending for the faith, He's not talking about just faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not just talking about believing in your heart, confessing in your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, or calling upon the name of the Lord, and whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's not just talking about that. When he's talking about contending for the faith, he's talking about the entirety of the Word of God. He's talking about Genesis to Revelation. He said, I'm writing you that you earnestly contend for the entirety 
of the Word of God. He said, it's going to be a fight and a battle. And I want to say, and I want to make this perfectly clear, I believe that the Bible is the literal, literal Word of God. I believe that it is divinely inspired, that it is God-breathed. All Scripture is divinely inspired by God. I believe the Word of God is infallible which means that it is incapable of failing. It has stood the test of time. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall by no means pass away. I believe the word of God is inerrant, which means that it is impossible for the word of God to make a mistake. It is absolute in truth for all things in every way, in every culture, every nation, every society, and for every individual. He said, you have to earnestly contend for the faith because there is a battle for the Bible. There's a battle for the Bible. And if you are not aware that there's a battle for the Bible, you're probably either lost or deceived in one of, the, one of the two. If you don't realize that the Bible is being attacked, which of course it's been attacked for a long time, if, you don't, if you're unable to see that, that Christianity is under attack, it, it always has been, you know, you can get on any television network, CNN, Fox News, NBC, CBS, whatever you want to, you can get on, on any, any of these news networks and talk about God all you want, and nobody will have a problem with it. But as soon as you stand up in front of one of those cameras and you say that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and that he is the only way to heaven, you're getting ready to get into some serious problems. They don't have a problem with God because God can be anything to anybody. But when you say Jesus is God, you'll find very, very quickly that you're going to run into some serious problems. And he says, look, you have to be prepared so that you can earnestly contend for the faith. Because the time is coming very, very soon where what you believe is going to be put to the test. What I believe is going to be put to the test. Very, very soon there's going to be a, 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 a time when you're going to be challenged to know what you believe why you live it, and have enough, have enough conviction in your heart to be able to stand for what's true. But I'm convinced the majority of people don't know what truth is, or they, they are the byproduct of what somebody else told them about truth, and they don't know truth personally, and, and truth is something that is, is relative. It's not absolute truth. You know, truth can be one thing for somebody, and it can mean something else for somebody, for somebody else. But if you don't have a conviction in your heart, when that test comes, I can promise you, you will be numbered among those that have departed from the faith before the second coming and return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Jude, again, is, is an alarm. It's a warning. It's a wake-up call that we would earnestly contend for the faith. Now, there's two ways, and this is in your outline. There's two ways that Satan has tried to get individuals to commit apostasy and fall away from the faith, and he still uses these two things today. And the first one is this. Number one. The devil has tried to destroy the faith through persecution. Through persecution. He's tried to snuff Christianity out through persecution. 
156,000 people are martyred for their faith in Christ every single year. Satan's tried to destroy people's property. He's even put people to death. But persecution has not worked very well in stopping the gospel. Actually, the blood of the martyrs are, is the seedbed of the church. Not only did love grow when blood fell, the church grows when blood falls. Through persecution, actually the gospel spreads. So here's what he said. Since persecution won't work, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to join them. If you can't beat them, what do you do? You join them. The second way that Satan's tried to destroy the church is he's tried to destroy the faith through infiltration. Since he can't beat us, he'll have to join us. He said, if I can't work outside the church through persecution, I will work from inside the church through infiltration. And I will destroy the very foundation of what the faith is built upon because if you have no foundation that is solid and secure, when the storms of life come, eventually you will fall to the elements. You will fall to the storm. You will fall to the challenge. You'll fall to the test. So it's it's important that you have a strong foundation. It may not cost you anything to be a Christian right now at this point, but I can promise you a day is coming when it will cost you everything. Salvation doesn't cost you anything, but becoming a disciple will cost you everything. So Satan says, if I can't beat them, I'm going to join them. And so Jude writes these words. He says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write to you about this common salvation, it was needful for me to write and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. So if Satan couldn't destroy the faith from the outside through persecution, he said, I'll begin to work from the inside through infiltration, and I will lead people into deception. And that's what's actually happening. So I want to give you a few things this morning. These are in your outline as well about apostasy. What what is apostasy? What's the dangers? What's the destruction? And and, and how do we defend against apostasy? And this is number one. First thing I want to talk about is the danger of apostasy. The danger. Look at verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed... Now, what this verse of Scripture is saying is that people who are false prophets, false teachers, false apostles, false brethren, the very things that we've talked about, he said, will creep in from the outside. There will be people that will come from among you that will lead many into deception. This is the dangerous thing. And the thing about deception that makes it so dangerous is that it's deceiving. You know, that's why Jesus said, I'd rather you be hot or cold. Because if you're lukewarm, he'll spew us out of our mouth. Listen, it's one thing to know that you're right. It's another thing to know that you're wrong. But it's a completely other thing to not know that what you are believing is wrong. So it's important that you know what you believe, why you believe it. It's a very dangerous thing. He said there's going to be people from inside the church that will appear to be preaching and teaching the truth that will actually lead others into deception. Now, how do I know that's true? 
The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter number 11, it says that Satan has the ability to transform himself into the angel of light. You know, when you read in Matthew 24 about the the sign, somebody asked Jesus, what would be the sign of your coming? And and when he begins to list these things, and, and a lot of people are familiar with the things that he lists, he said that there will be wars and rumors of wars, that there will be famines and earthquakes and pestilences and and diverse places. Nations shall rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. But before he gets into all of those details and lists all of those things that are signs of his coming, the first thing that he mentions, he says, take heed and let no man deceive you. The first sign of the second coming of Christ in that particular list is the fact that Deception is going to be running rampant at this particular time in history. I'm telling you, we are in the beginning stages of this deception right now. We're seeing things. Again, mainstream denominations, great men of God, our, our universities that were founded, again, founded on the Bible and for the purpose of preaching and taking the gospel both here and around the world have completely departed from the faith. They are almost enemies of the very founding in which they were created. We're seeing this. It's It's happened. It's not going to happen. It has happened, and it is happening, and it will progressively continue to get worse and worse and worse and worse. So it's a very dangerous time. He said, but take heed, let no man deceive you. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4.1, he said, The Spirit speaks expressly that in latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Listen, there's a lot of hyper-grace teaching, okay, which basically says that God loves you just the way that you are, and you don't have to change, you don't have to repent, you just have to believe and accept. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, accept Jesus in your heart. Nowhere does Jesus say, accept me into your heart. He says, follow me. He says, repent and turn. He says, renounce and follow. That, there, it's a very deceptive thing. I mean, it's, it's a gospel of easy believism. Just believe. You know, we talked about that last week with Simon. Simon believed, Right? And he didn't just believe, he followed up in baptism, right? That's what you do when somebody gets saved. The very next step is for them to be water baptized. But he didn't just believe, and he wasn't just baptized. He continued to follow Philip, but his heart was not really changed. Because nowhere does it mention that he repented. Nowhere does it mention that he forsook Nowhere does it say that he turned, and nowhere does it say that he mentions the name of Jesus in any shape, form, or fashion. But yet, externally, he looked like he's done all of the religious formalities that a person would do in order to qualify as a believer. Doctrines of devils. Now, here's the second thing I want to talk to you about. The second thing is the destruction of apostasy. Look at verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew. Now what Jude is saying here is that just because you're familiar and just because you've got Bible knowledge about what apostasy is 
and you have Bible knowledge and you're familiar with what it means to fall away from the faith, does it mean that you are above being deceived or departing from the faith yourself? And then he says, even though you knew. Even though you knew. Even though you're hearing me tell you these things right now, does not guarantee that you will endure to the end. Jesus said, and he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. And so just because you know, just because you're in church, just because you understand doctrine properly, just because you have a few verses memorized, just because you give, just because you've been baptized, just because you've confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, just because you believe these things does not make you immune or above being deceived and falling away as the Scripture plainly teaches. Even though you knew. And he says, you know what? There were those that knew what you know right now before you, and they fell away. And he gives us three examples of that. The first one is this. Israel was destroyed in spite of its profession. Israel was destroyed in spite of its profession. The Lord having what? Talk to me. The Lord having what? The Lord having what? The Lord having what? What are we talking about? Saved people. The Lord having... Do we have any disagreements on what we're talking about here? I want you to get this. The Lord having saved. Who did he save? His people. Out of the land of Egypt. Afterwards, well, after what? After he saved. What did he do? Talk to me, what did he do? Sometimes I wish this stuff wasn't in the Bible. The Lord having saved Israel out of Egypt afterward destroyed who? Those that did not believe. Well, you can't get saved if you don't believe, right? So what does that tell? It tells us that there's some that profess to believe that afterward renounced what they believed and fell into unbelief. Meaning, they departed. The Lord having saved the people out of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now the thing I want to point out is this. Everybody that came out of Egypt had the same experience. They experienced a miraculous encounter with God. Supernatural, which is salvation. Salvation is the greatest miracle of all miracles. They all experienced salvation because the Lord saved them out of Egypt, the Scripture says. They all had the blood of the Passover lamb applied to their home. 
They all saw the waters part, and they all walked across on dry ground. They all followed the cloud by day, and they all followed the pillar of fire by night. They all experienced the same thing, and I I want you to get it. All of these were saved out of Egypt, and all of them professed that Yahweh was the one who did it. Okay? They didn't, you know, they didn't question which God did it. There were a lot of gods in Egypt. They knew who saved, delivered, and brought them out. They professed that it was Yahweh who had brought them out and delivered them from Egyptian bondage. And the Bible says that afterwards God destroyed those who did not believe. In other words, those that believed turned away from what they believed and professed. Why did they do that? I mean, you would think if you saw the Red Sea part and you walked across on dry ground, you wouldn't need to see anything else to convince you. Right? If you saw the ten plagues destroy the most powerful nation on the face of the earth and you'd be spared from that, you would think that that would be enough to convince you. You would think that when manna fell from heaven every single morning to make sure you had food to eat, that the pillar of of, of, of fire would lead you by night and the cloud by... You would think that they would not need anything else to continue on, but yet all of the miraculous things that God did for them were not enough for some of them to continue, and they departed afterwards. Now, if that happened to the children of Israel, what makes us think that it couldn't happen to us today? In spite of their profession... In spite of what they said, in spite of what they believed, in spite of all that they seen, and they had a legitimate experience with God, right? I mean, nobody would deny. I mean, look, today we've got so many people that are skeptical. Let me tell you something. There was nobody skeptical about the waters parting. They were completely convinced that this is a miracle, right? There's no doubters. When the waters part, doubt left, I can promise you. They may have doubted before they part, the waters parted, but they didn't doubt while the waters were parting. They walked across on dry ground. But in spite of that, the wilderness brought out the worst in them. And instead of the wilderness drawing them closer to God, the wilderness was allowed to draw them away from God because they refused to continue to draw near to Him. I mean, I wonder how many people that have come to God at a hard time in their life, and once things started to get better for them, they chose to go back to do what they were doing before they met God. It happens all the time. So Jude's writing here. He's saying, you know, I'm writing this to you because just because you profess to believe and you may genuinely be a believer, 
doesn't mean if you don't continue to persevere in believing and living, doesn't guarantee you immunity against deception. Here's the second thing. The next example was this. The angels were destroyed in spite of their position. It says, The angels who did not keep proper domain but left their own abode, he has received in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. And the point I want to make here is this. I, I believe what Judah's saying is, listen, angels who were once very close to the throne of God, angels, cherubim, seraphim, angels, holy, ministering spirits, flames of fire who were once close to God, left their domain, and they are now reserved in chains and everlasting darkness and will be destroyed because of their sin. Angels who were in the heavenlies, angels that were in, around the throne of God, created angels, holy, sinless. And even though their position, that they were close to God, they had a high position, did not make them immune to falling. And what I believe Judah's saying in this verse is, you know what? Don't think just because you're a pastor, you're a teacher, you're an elder, you're a deacon, or you hold some high position in some church somewhere that you're above falling. If the angels can fall, so can you. So he destroyed Israel in spite of their profession. He destroyed the angels in spite of their position. Here's the third example he gives us. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed in spite of their privilege. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering vengeance of eternal fire. Now the point I want to make here is this. Sodom and Gomorrah was a very beautiful and glorious land at one time. Remember the story when, when Abraham and Lot came out of their homeland and they come to where Sodom and Gomorrah was? He gave Lot the choice of the, of the land in which he wanted to possess. And he chose Sodom and Gomorrah because of its beauty and its splendor and its glory and, and all that God had created it for its original purpose to be. He chose it. And so the Bible says God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. And the reason I believe this is included in the Bible is that it is a living example, a present-day example of the destruction of a city, a nation, a town, a people who turn their backs and walk away from God. America is not too big to fail. America isn't too great that God cannot judge us. And by all indications, I, I don't see anything that is keeping that from happening sometime very soon. 
I don't care who's in the White House. The Bible says that innocent blood defiles the land. 4,000 babies are aborted every single day. When Cain slew Abel, the Bible says the righteous blood of Abel cried out to God for vengeance. And if one innocent soul whose blood was shed cried out to God from the earth, can you imagine the millions and millions and millions of innocent unborn children that have been slaughtered in abortion clinics across this nation that are crying out to God for judgment today? Revival in our nation will not come because we have a conservative president. Revival in our nation will only come when God's people begin to repent for tolerating the things that we're seeing happen right now. You know what's got our nation where it is today? Passive Christianity. It's, it's not, look, you can argue politics all you want and be a fool. But it is the church's passivity that has tolerated and allowed immorality, wickedness, and evil to continue to progress to the point to where we legalize wickedness and evil. Isaiah said there would be a time when people would call evil good and good evil. This is just where we're at. It's not a legislative issue, it's a moral issue. And the church is supposed to be the moral compass for the world. But we've lost our own sense of morality. We have no moral compass. And we have no backbone. And our nation is in grave danger of being destroyed because we're no different than Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's the third thing and the last thing. We have the danger of apostasy. We have the destruction of apostasy and we have the defense against apostasy. The bottom line is, you cannot defend a faith that you do not know and live. For better or for worse, for or against, Christianity will always be judged by the character and quality of the, of the people who profess it. Our example is our most powerful means of persuasion. And so Jude writes, I found it necessary to exhort you to earnestly contend for the faith. And if we're going to earnestly contend for the faith, we're going to have to be able to do four things. And this is your last blanks here. Number one, we're going to have to study the faith. You can't defend a faith that you don't know. And I cannot tell you how many conversations that I have had with individuals where I said, can you take me in the Bible 
and show me what it is that you're basing your salvation on and tell me why you believe what you believe. If I were to set you down as an individual and ask you that same question, could you tell me? If you could not tell me and that doesn't concern you, I am highly concerned for you. Now, that's not being judgmental. I'm just saying the Scripture says you are to study to show your own self approved before God. He said, study to show yourself approved unto God. Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. The apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he says that we are to be ready to give a defense for the hope that we profess to be living on the inside of us. And if you cannot defend the faith that you say you believe in, then how do you know what you believe in is real? I mean, it's, I, I know this is hard. But I mean, this is such a burden on my heart because I've seen such a, a passive attitude about Christians, not just here, but almost everywhere I go in, 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 our, in our state and, and even in other states where, where they, they think that, that following Jesus is an option, where they think that coming to church is, is just, you know, doing God a favor. They, they don't open up their Bible. They don't pray. They, they have no commitment. The fruits, it's not there. And that concerns me. Because I've read the Bible, and I know what it says, and one day every single one of us will stand before God. And you will stand before God with me there. You'll stand before God yourself by yourself, and He will judge you. He said He will judge the secrets of every man's heart by Christ Jesus. You're not going to stand before me. You're not going to stand before the President. You're not going to stand before a king of a nation, you're going to stand before the king of kings and lord of lords. And can you imagine standing before him and he says, well, what would you think about my book? And then you say, well, I don't know, I never read it. So what does your commitment to the word of God say about your commitment to the God of the word? Because your commitment to the Word of God is a reflection of your commitment to the God of the Word. Israel professed, and afterwards were destroyed. The angels, one time were close to God. Afterwards, they were destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah, they had privilege, like we do. Afterwards, they were destroyed. So we've got to study the faith. It's just studied to show yourself approved. You know, I'm convinced that there's a lot of people that believe the epistles are the wives of the apostles. That's meant to be a joke in the midst of this tension. <laughs> if I said, open your Bible to the book of Hezekiah, how many of you would try to find it? Turn over to Philip 66 and let's start reading verse 1. You know how many books are in the Bible? You know who wrote the Bible? 
to study. Here's the second thing. Then come to music. I'm wrapping it up. It's too much. Study the faith. Number two, show the faith. The greatest argument for Christianity or against Christianity is our example. Christianity is the life of a Christian. In other words, we should live it. If you don't live it, you don't believe it. And again, I'm not talking about moral perfection. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm talking about humbly examining your life in light of what God says in his word to us as individuals and saying, I need to change. It's about repenting. It's about forgiving. You wouldn't believe how many people have so much unforgiveness in their heart over something that somebody else has done to them while all the while forgetting all the things that they themselves have done against God. But yet we don't want God to give us what we deserve, but we definitely want other people to get what they deserve. Jesus says, don't hold offense, let it go. Apologize, say I'm sorry, repent, turn. There's a lot of things in there that, that, that make up what the faith is all about. And those are not things that are optional. The faith you know is the faith you show. Faith without works is dead. Here's the third thing. Third thing is we've got to stand for the faith. A time is coming, and mark my word. Mark it. Get a tattoo on your forehead. A time is coming when every single one of you, including myself, is going to be put to the test. And you're going to be put under a microscope, and you're going to be asked questions. Every question under the sun. Well, how do you know the Bible is true? How do you know the Bible is the actual, literal word of God? Well, how do you know that Jesus is God in the flesh? And how do you know that he's the only way to, to heaven? And what about all these other world religions? And, you know, is there not a Buddhist way or an Islamic way or a Hindu way? Is there not? I believe love wins. In the end, love wins. That's true. Love does win. But love also warns. And when you're in that place where you have to stand for the truth... You're going to be called every bad name under the sun. You're a bigot. You're hateful. You're mean-spirited. You're harsh. You're rude. You're narrow-minded. You're going to be blasted. You're going to be accused. You're going to be criticized. You're going to be torn down. You're going to be attacked. And it will cost you something. And we're going to have to stand for the faith. If we don't know how to stand for the faith, if we don't have enough conviction in our hearts to stand, listen, a day is coming when you say that Jesus is the only way to, is the only way to heaven, you will be charged for hate crimes against other religions. 
I can guarantee you that there are bills already in progress of being written today that will charge people for hate crimes against and listen that stuff happens it does but in Indonesia it's an Islamic Republic it's illegal to convert a Muslim to Christ to punish them by death where's the outrage there The only outrage and really backlash that you get in our nation is when you try to stand for Jesus. But this is the reality, and this is what Jude's talking about. You've got to earnestly contend for the faith. Here's the last thing. You've got to share the faith. Say this with me. Study the faith. Show the faith. Stand for faith. Share the faith. If you're going to earnestly contend for the faith, you have to do those four things. You have to study. You have to show. You have to stand. You have to share. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And if we're not catching any fish, can we honestly say that we're following Jesus? He said, you'll have power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go, baptize, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey. You ever tried to teach somebody to obey? Hard. I'm terribly burdened. Stand with me. I know this stuff's not easy to hear. I know it's not very popular. And I know it's not shouting messages that make you want to be so motivated and fired up. You know what? I've been a lot of places in the world where it's illegal to convert a Muslim to Christ. In Bovenishwa, Indonesia, or Bovenishwa, India, it's the most persecuted state in all of India people pick you up at the airport with bruises on their faces many of them just get out of the hospital this is a true story they come and they pick you up before the trip the pastor and leader of this group of churches in in Bovenishwa him his eight-year-old son and ten-year-old son were pinned against a pole in their Jeep, had gasoline poured on their Jeep, was lit on fire, and they were burned alive. And when you go to this area, 
You can only have church for 12 minutes. Some of you are thinking, oh, hallelujah. But the reason you can only have church for 12 minutes is because 12 minutes is all the time you've got before you run into the people that have come to beat your brains out for the gospel. And so you go into this place and people are weeping and sobbing and Again, they have bruises on their faces and they're hugging and they're kissing each other and it's such a holy thing. And they're so happy to be together because they don't know if there will be a next time for them. And so you're there and the clock is ticking. And then, let's suppose you're there and they ask you to speak. What kind of message do you have for those folks? I'm sitting here thinking, I don't think I qualify to speak to those folks. What am I going to talk about? Faith. If you had a little more faith, bro, you'd be okay. Sacrifice, prayer, commitment. Pick, pick a topic. So they ask you to speak, okay? Nobody's speaking in that kind of environment. Because it's unlike anything that I've ever seen. I remember they, they, they asked Rick if he'd like to say something. And then they'll ask you if you want to say something. And they'll like, no. So this guy comes up to Rick and he says, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. He said, I want you to pray that I'd have grace. And so Rick says to himself, he says, you know, and this dude right here has got more grace in his pinky than I've got in my whole body. What am I going to teach him about grace? And so he says, well, maybe he doesn't understand what grace is. And so Rick says, you know what? I shared with him what grace was. Grace was divine enablement to do the will of God. It's unmerited favor. And he said, he just listened to me so generously and just let me get what I needed to say out. And finally, he said to him, he said, Pastor, no, I'm sorry. No. He said, pray for me that I may have grace. He said, my pastor was number one on the hit list to be martyred for Christ. I'm number two. He said, pray that I may live one more day that I might share the gospel with others. Departing from that trip, Rick says, I'm going to go back to America. And he said, I'm going to tell the American church to pray that this persecution stops. And you know what the people said? No! No, Pastor, please, don't do that. Don't pray that. They said persecution is like someone trying to stomp out a fire. The more you try to stomp it out, the more the fire spreads. Can you imagine somebody looking at you and saying, don't pray that they stop beating me for the gospel. Don't pray that they stop uh, uh, trying to kill me. Don't. Don't pray that this would get easier. Pray that my backbone would get stronger. It's different when you look into those kinds of folks' eyes and then you try to come back and communicate that to the privilege of who we are. And it's almost like the less it costs us, the less we appreciate. 
dreams. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Jude. Lord, I want to be one of these people that study your word, that show it by the way I live, that's able to stand when I'm put to the test, somebody that's willing to share it. But I can't do that in my own strength, and I can't do it in my own flesh or my own wisdom. I can do nothing without you. So help me to be better things that matter if you're here this morning and you don't know Lord, Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and God's dealing with you if you don't have that assurance that if you were to die today and you stood before God that you would go to heaven or maybe you know that you're not right with God and today God's dealing with you I'm going to count to three and if he's speaking to you and you want to give your life to the Lord you feel God drawing you. I just want you to put your hands straight up and straight back down. On the count of three. One, two, three. Anybody here? Anybody? Anybody else? Maybe you're here and you're saved. But you're lukewarm. You're backslidden. You know that you're not where you need to be. And your relationship with God is not what it used to be. And you feel God drawing you. This morning, would you, would you lift your hand right now real quickly? Amen. Amen. The rest of you, how many would say, you know what? I want to be one of these Christians that study the faith, show the faith, that stand for the faith, that share the faith. If that's you, if you lifted your hand, God's dealing with you at all. As they sing and as they play, I'm going to invite you to get out of your seat and come and say, God, change me. God, change me. Amen.